Well, if you've brought your Bibles tonight, and I hope that you have, turn with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 24. Um, I want to read to you from, from I'll get, I won't give you very long to get it found. Uh, Matthew chapter 24, I want to start at the third verse, uh, and I want to read oh, down through maybe the 14th verse or so. Uh, and then we'll go to the Lord together in a word of prayer. And then I'll try to share with you what God has burdened my heart with. Matthew chapter 24, beginning with verse 3 says, And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us when these things shall be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye, see that ye be not troubled, for all of these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. All of these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they be delivered Excuse me, verse 9. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you. And ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. Then shall the end come. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we just humbly come before you here tonight. We thank you, Lord, for the many blessings. We thank you, Lord, for the good fellowship that we've had, the, your presence that we felt here tonight, the good singing and the testimonies and the witnesses. And, and we just thank you, Lord, for everything that you've done so far. And we thank you, Lord, for what you, we know that you're still yet to do. And Lord, we just, uh, uh, you've been so good to us, so much better than what we deserve. And Lord, we just don't, I don't feel worthy. But God, you loved us, and you loved us before we ever even loved you. And you've done it all for us, knowing how many would reject you, and knowing how many would rebel against you, and how many would disobey. But you've done it anyways. God, we're not worthy, and we don't deserve it. We could never do enough to thank you or repay you. But God, let us always have praise and glory on our lips for you, because you alone, you alone are worthy of it. Lord, I pray that you would meet every need here tonight. I pray that you would encourage our people tonight. I pray, Lord, that you would lift us up. I pray that you would draw us near to you. God, I pray that we would see uh, a mighty move of your Spirit here tonight. I pray, Lord, that you would, uh, Lord, that you'd give us the boldness when we leave here tonight to go out and be witnesses to you. Lord, my prayer is, is that we would just, uh, God, that we would be your servants, that we would go out and labor in your field. God, my prayer is, is that you would just touch each one here tonight. Lord, you know what we stand in need of. So, Lord, I place it into your hands. And, Lord, there's two things that I specifically want to ask you for. One is if there's any loss here tonight. Lord, let tonight be the night that they would get things right with you before it's everlasting too late. Let tonight be the night that they would repent and believe the gospel. Let tonight be the night they would get saved. And the other thing, Lord, is I need your help. I can't do this without you. I can't preach your word lest you give me uh, the message, lest you give me the thoughts, lest you guide my tongue and every word that I speak tonight. So, Lord, I'm asking that you'd clear my mind of everything except for your message, your thoughts, your words. That you'd place on my tongue the very words you'd have me to speak tonight. Lord, that you'd pour out your holy unction, your anointing upon me, and that you would anoint me from on high. And God, that you would use me and preach me one more time here tonight. And I'll be sure and give you every bit of the glory for it. Lord, bless, bless each one that's here tonight. 
Encourage each one, lift up each one. Lord, if there's something in our life, Lord, uh, convict us of it. God, don't let us leave here the same way that we come in. Let each one of us leave here with a greater zeal to serve you, to follow you, to worship you. Bless, move in a mighty way. We ask it all in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. I, uh, I want to tell you a story tonight. Or start out with it. Um, two things. This is a true story. And it's been famously told and written about. There's a good chance that, you know, maybe you've heard it before. Um, there's a, I've talked about it before. Whether I've told this story to you before or not, I don't know and I don't remember. And it doesn't matter. I, uh, the Lord put this story on my heart. Uh, it, I think it perfectly illustrates the message that God... I say perfectly. It illustrates very well the message that God uh, gave me for tonight. And so that's why I want to share it with you. The story goes that, of course, this took place years ago. And years, even years ago, he was an older gentleman. He, uh, he was a German. He grew up in Germany. He, uh, Nazi Germany is what we would refer to it. Right? During, he was a young boy uh, in the 30s, in the early 40s. Uh, very young boy. Uh, not so young that he doesn't remember it, but obviously not old enough that he would have been part of the fighting the war effort or anything like that. When he talks about and he tells the story, uh, he, uh, years later when he was older, he, he'd come over here to the United States. But anyways, when he tells the story, one thing that he wants to make clear from the very beginning is our perception of what the average person in rural Germany in that time is probably not accurate. Right? When we think of that time, we see all the things having to do with the Nazis and the Nazi propaganda and the buildup of the war machine and, you know, uh, you know, getting ready to invade Poland and then, you know, on from there and the beginning of World War II and all that stuff, right? Uh, Anti-Semitism, right, on the rise, and which it was on the rise. But he said in rural Germany, where he grew up when he was a boy, he said none of those things was, nobody was thinking about those things, nobody even cared about those things. You see, in the 30s, we were going through the Great Depression here. The Great, Great Depression was triggered by the, uh, uh, what, they, what they, do they call that Black Friday or whatever? I get confused on that because of the shopping thing. Maybe it's the same difference. But anyways, when the stock market collapsed, okay, in 1929, was in October of 1929, the stock market collapsed, and that was the beginning of all of it. Um, one thing that a lot of people don't realize is, of course, we were hit the hardest by it. It's what led to what we call the Great Depression. But the nation that, I, I hate to put a number on it and say the second most hit economy in the world, but it very well may have been. It was definitely hardly hit was Germany. The, as a matter of fact, their severe economic problems was a lot of what allowed some of the Nazi stuff to come to rise up and come to power and, and, and you know, cause people to do things that they otherwise wouldn't do. But for him, as a young boy, Growing up in rural Germany, his folks was farmers like the people around him. Their concern was putting food on the table. They were trying to scratch out a living just like folks here was. Just like the stories that we hear Mary Sue and that generation tell of, you know, dad was just trying to get enough food together and, uh, you know, on the table to, you know, the... the that, they were going through the same thing. They were doing the same thing. They, you know, yes, there was monsters over there that was coming into political power and doing horrific things, but your common people in the countryside didn't have a, they weren't physically doing those things. They weren't thinking about those things. They might, they didn't know to the extent of what was going on. They had heard some things. Some of them did. But that was just something distant in their mind. That is not what their normal fo focus was. The story impacts me so much because he begins uh, by saying that he would have considered himself a Christian. His whole family would have considered themselves Christians. He said that they went to, uh, they had a little church house that they went to. 
And they went to that, they, they were faithful in serving, in serving God, they felt like. Uh, they went to church every time the doors was open, just like folks around here did. They were no different in that aspect. And so that's his, that's his memories as a small boy. And, and it's, it, you know, it's working. Uh, and, 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 you know, all the kids pitching in and helping daddy in the field and working, trying to make a living, put food on the table and going to church. He said that probably everybody in the community had heard the rumors and the stories about what was happening to the Jews. But like I said, like most people in the country in, in that time, they just tried to distance themselves from it. They, just, they had their own problems, their own concerns, their own things that they were, they were worried about, and they just focused on their own little family. Uh, they were kind of ignoring and shutting out the reality of what was happening to some of these other people. He said that there was one of the distinctives about the little church that he grew up in and uh, was there was a set of railroad tracks that went right by the church house. Now, I don't know if you've ever spent any time on the railroad close to the train, train tracks before, but I have. I've worked a couple different places. It was right on the train tracks. So I worked over at Mountain Grove Building Supply. It was funny, whenever you're outside working in the yard, you know, loading lumber or something, and the train goes by, and uh, even when it wasn't blowing its horn, you know, the train whistle, you could be standing there talking to somebody, and just all of a sudden all you do is you just see their lips moving, and that's it. You don't hear nothing, you know. Just, just that old engine itself is deafening. He said a little, the little, train, the little uh, church was right on the train tracks. And he said when the train come by, you knew that it come by, but it wasn't deafening in there. He said one Sunday morning, they're in there and they're having service. Hear the train whistle. I mean, it's one of them things, I live fairly close to the train tracks. After a while, you kind of, I mean, I'm not right on it. If I was close enough that it literally shook the walls of my house, I would obviously probably take notice every time it went by. But I'm close enough, I definitely could hear it. My first move there, it bothered me some. Now I don't even notice it when it goes by. So it was kind of one of them things. You know, trains going by and it's not disruptive or anything like that, you know. But you could hear it. This one Sunday morning, and I, I, he, he gives the date and the year, and I don't remember it, but it's early on in all of this. He said they heard voices coming from the train as it was slowly going by. It wasn't voices like people talking, you know. It wasn't like it was workers out there or something talking. He says they began to listen. There's people calling out as cries for help. People in the church were very disturbed by this. They were very upset. I mean, think about it for a minute. It took, it took you know, at first you hear it and you're what is that? And then, you know, it's the realization starting to sink in. And then, you know, all the things are going through your mind and you're trying to figure out what in the world, what could it be? What's going on? I don't understand. You know, it's just trying to comprehend. And then it just fell over them all, kind of all at once. The train was carrying Jews. See, this was the beginning of the... Jake's been making fun of me all week. Holocaust. I've been wanting to say holocaust for some reason. Holocaust. This is the beginning of the... or the early days, early years of the holocaust. And it was, I mean, it was a very disturbing Sunday morning, a very disturbing incident. And a few weeks went by and it happened again. And then it started happening every week, again and again and again. Uh, people couldn't, I mean, they didn't feel like they could do anything about it, I guess. They had their own problems and their own concerns. They were trying to just ignore it and shut it out. But I mean, it just was, the, the tormented screams and cries for help was just more than what they could handle. So, here, so here's what they ended up doing. They figured out, he said after a while, the thing was coming by, it was like clockwork. 
load after load, and the people are crying out for help on it every time. He said it got so, you know, the rhythm got to the point where they could time it out, where they literally timed their worship service to where they were singing when the train would come by. And they realized that if they, if they were, I mean, if they were all in, full tilt singing, it would drown out the cries. And so they were singing. And he said that occasionally if a cry would come, a cry for help would come above the singing, they would just sing that much louder and just drowned out. He ends his story saying years have passed by. He's an old man now. He said, no one talks about those Sundays anymore. But he said, I can still hear the train whistle in my sleep. He said, when I close my eyes at night, I still hear the people crying for help. And us just singing louder and louder and louder. He was tormented by those memories until the very end of his life, I guess, is the way it seemed to me. You know, when I think about that, and I think about it, and I realize that, you know, that's like 80 years ago that all that happened. But the Bible warns us that in the last days there's going to be difficulties. The last days are going to be dangerous. They're going to be violent. I mean, have you seen the news? Do you realize what is going on in the world right now? The things that we've been through in the last couple years. Uh, you know, I mean, it is just, un- I never would have dreamed I would have seen things like this. With each passing day, a new story emerges that reminds us of just how unsafe and how unstable our world is in these last days. I mean, you know, you go back to 9-11 and it was absolutely devastating and it, it shook our nation so much that it kind of filled up the churches for just a short while, you know, or they we've seen a boost in the churches and attendance and things. But now we've come to the point in the 20 years since then, 22 years or 21 years since then, more and more things is happening, right? There's more bombings. There's more shoot, the school shootings. Goodness sakes, the mass shootings. I, I mean, you know, just I forget the number of people the guy killed out there in Las Vegas from that hotel window. I mean, just it's just one thing after another, right? And we hear all these things happening. And I'm going to be honest with you. They affect me a whole lot less than what they used to. I hear about it and I just go on. I wonder. It's almost like I'm just singing a little bit louder, isn't it? It's kind of drowned it out, kind of forget about it. I got my own problems. I got my own things that I'm worried about. When I was down there preaching that revival, way off down there in Arkansas, it's not that far over there from Rogers. Rogers is kind of the next town of any size. There were several of them, well, it was the big thing they were talking about down there. There's an abortion clinic that they're trying to put in there in Rogers, Arkansas. And they've got everything there, but they haven't got their official whatever it is that they need, their license or whatever, to perform abortions. And there's something that's supposed to get ready to happen. And I forget now, I, I don't know the legality of all that and how that's all supposed to take place and happen. But they were, they were, you know, the people in the church down there was pretty up in arms. As a matter of fact, one gentleman that went to church there, he was there every night of the revival anyways, he said that it literally bordered his backyard. Uh, he was talking about, I, I wouldn't even go in because it's grotesque. I wouldn't even go into one story that, that he told of something that he witnessed. He said he was pretty sure they were already doing stuff there that they're not supposed to be doing yet. Uh, but anyway, so they had a petition there. They were signing the petition. They were talking about, you know, and I think about that and that kind of stuff that is going on across our nation, across our land right now. And, and, and uh, you know, th- those, those are babies in, the, in those women's stomachs, okay, in their bellies, in their wounds, right? Those are, those are babies. Those are humans, right? Those are, those are living souls that is in there. And I, you know, and I, I was thinking about that and I, I was thinking about this 
this week whenever I was down there trying to preach the revival and they was talking about that stuff. And I thought, you know, wow, uh, if we could hear them babies, you know, as they're crying out for help and what are we doing, you know, are we just singing a little bit louder to drown out the noise so that we don't have to think about the horror that is going on. But the Bible warns us, right? I just read to you a little piece of it here in Matthew 24. The Bible warns us that that it's going to get like this. And I've tried to make the case to you that it seems like we've heard so many stories and so many things have happened that it does not even shock us anymore. And my fear of what is happening to us is what it says in verse 12, and it says, And because iniquity shall abound. Now, I don't necessarily mean iniquity is sin, right? The word iniquity means um, unrighteousness. It means wickedness. It means rebellion. Now, I, and I don't mean your sin personally. I mean, if you have any sin personally in your life, just like I talked about this morning, you need to repent of it and get it out of the way, you know? Hey, if you're hanging on to it and trying to live in it, you are part of the problem. Okay? Uh, Let me be 100% clear. You're not part of the solution. You're not helping. You're part of the problem. But anyways, it says here, because iniquity shall abound. I'm thinking about the iniquity of our nation, us as a people, our culture. Because iniquity shall abound. Grow, abound, surplus, plenteous. Would you have ever believed the times that we live in? I I was actually, I'll reveal to you how stupid I am. Whenever they legalized the Supreme Court, legalized same-sex marriage, I was surprised. I didn't think they would do it. I was way wrong. We're at the point now, that's that's not even a big deal. I mean, it is a big deal, but we act like, you know what I'm saying? There's a lot of preachers that you'll talk to that at this point, it's just, you know, they're just like, nah, well, whatever, you know. I'm not going to do any homosexual marriages, but let the rest do whatever. Iniquity, unrighteousness, rebellion against God. It is abounding. We wonder why things are the way that they are. All right, so the verse says... Let me get back up here so I can read it because I don't want to misquote it. Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many uh, shall wax cold. Those two things are connected. Because, right? It starts out because. Because iniquity, right? Because of the rebellious uh, culture in sin and unrighteousness and wickedness that is rampant in our society and our culture, because of that, the love of many shall wax cold. Now that word, that phrase, wax cold, if you look it up and do a word study on that, it carries the idea of cooling something that is hot, right? So something that is hot cooling down. That's the idea. That is the word picture that is created by wax cold. I think about that and I think about uh, the iniquity. And because of it, our love is growing cold. It was hot, and now it is becoming cold. And as I've been telling you, iniquity certainly abounds in our day. I mean, you know, look at immorality, right? I was talking a little bit about that in homosexual same-sex marriage. Uh, living together without being married, that's no big deal anymore, you know? I mean, used to that, it, um, you know, used to that was a big deal. Now we think if that is all they're doing, gambling, right? That used to be a big deal. That gets you, that get, that gets you disciplined and excommunicated and you know, turned over to the devil hoping that you would repent and come back. Now we think if that is all that they do, you know? We watch it on TV thinking about the immorality, right? It started out for years, they shoved it down to us where you couldn't watch anything. On any kind of TV, regular TV or cable, it didn't have to be cable TV, it could be regular TV, where people that weren't married were living together or, or doing things together like they were married. 
I mentioned this in the revival this week. When my kids were probably middle school age, I'll never forget when they come home and they were sh- they I was shocked they were you know surprised or I was surprised when they told me that they were the odd ones in school because they didn't have two sets of parents because they didn't go to dads on the weekends or every other weekend or moms or whatever I'm not I'm not kicking anybody that's been through divorce or anything like that I mean obviously we know that's not God's desire, and that's not God's plan. But look at the place that our society has come to when that is the normal. And, and, and it is not normal, it is abnormal for the parents to have stayed together. For brothers and sisters to be full brothers and sisters. Right? We're to the point that it's common, and I can name people, and I'm talking, I'm not even talking people that, that we know are lost out here in the world. I'm talking people who claim to be Christian that have, you know, two, well, more than two, three, four, and five kids by three, four, and five dads. I've made people mad at me before, but it's the truth. When I growed up, we had a couple old dogs around the neighborhood that acted like that and done like that. It's truth. That is where we are at. Iniquity abounds. That is where we're at as a society, where we, we don't behave like civilized, decent human beings. We behave like animals, like dogs. Sin, iniquity, certainly abounds in our day. Immorality, abortion, divorce, gambling, homosexualism, um, all these people who don't know whether they're a boy or a girl, that is the nuttiest, craziest thing. And as a society, we are, it's mental illness and we're coddling it. My goodness, you have heard about this. The nicest term I can think of I'm going to use. Very confused boy who thinks he's a girl trying to swim again, you know, swimming against the girls. Ain't that the nuttiest thing? Where's his dad at? There's where the problem, there's, I mean, I'm just, anyways. Help me, Lord. It is so bad, it's, it's comical. I mean, we're laughing at some of these things. Jake, you ever decide you want to swim on the girls' team, I'll fix you real good, all right, son? We look even in our own community. Of course, drunkenness, alcoholism has been a problem in the world for a long time. We can see that plumb back to when Moses got off the ark. Not Moses, he didn't get off the ark. Noah got (laughs) off the ark. I'm still thinking about Jake trying to swim on the girls' team. Lord, help me get back going on track here. I am thrilled with the revival that we see taking place and the, and the miracles that we see God working in our community with those that have, are battling addiction, drug use, and things like that. I'm, I'm, you know, there's, there's been a lot of them that's gotten saved, and praise God for that. But it's sad that, it's, that it even was that a way to begin with. And if there's that many that's coming out of it, and I hope every single one of them comes out of it, but I'm also a realist, I know. If there's that many that's coming out of it, how many there is that is held down by it? How many there is that's dying every day? 
And we're talking about those kinds of things, but really the profaning of things, of everything that is sacred, uh, lying, cheating, stealing, those are things that we're not even concerned about anymore. The truth is in our own mind, if that is all that they do, then we, you know, we probably think they're pretty good fella or gal, you know? Crime is increasing. Bombings, school shootings, murders, uh, robberies. I mean, things like that are the headlines almost every day. Our society has absolutely fallen apart and so many people are still in denial about it or want to blame and point the finger everywhere but at the right place. People actually lie, cheat, and brag about it. Profanity is so common. I am, I, I am not old, but I'm old enough to remember whenever you would make a reference and say, he, you know, that guy is pretty coarse. You know, he's pretty rough, he's pretty coarse. We now live in a time in the society where our women and children speak and act like that. We see it. We hear it on the radio. We see it on TV and on the internet, on our phones, our tablets, whatever it is that we use to access that stuff all the time, every day. The language and the content is so vile. Things have come to the point that we are afraid to open the door. The door to somebody, to a stranger, somebody we don't know. I'm old enough to remember when we didn't lock the door at all. It's come to the point where we we look the other way when we see a hitchhiker. We stand at a distance to avoid making eye contact with homeless people. We, many churches, Lock their doors. Lock and bolt their doors after the service has started. You can remember a time, I'm sure, when there mo- a lot of churches never locked their doors. I remember when I was down at Dry Creek and there was an incident that took place down there and they actually changed the locks on the door and screwed the windows shut. And some of the, the older ones, you know, then was talking about back when they were young, they never, the doors to Dry Creek stayed open 24-7 all year round. They only in the 19, late 50s, early 60s, they started locking the doors during deer season only because they had so many deer hunters that would come up there and use the bathroom and make a mess and somebody got upset about it and so they started locking the doors during deer season to satisfy. But otherwise, they never locked the doors. The lines are slowly being blurred between shyness and coldness, right? The lines are being blurred between silence and indifference, between being guarded and being uncaring. Um, one of my favorite Tozer quotes is he said, he said, keep me, he wrote, keep me, Lord, from ever hardening down into the state of being just another average Christian. The average Christian today is cold. Their their love has waxed cold, has grown cold, and they're uncaring, unconcerned, and indifferent. You see, because the problem of all this that I've been talking about has, has resulted in the growing cold has creeped into the church and it is becoming normal for us, a normal occurrence among Christians. As a matter of fact, I believe, I want you to turn over with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want to read the first seven verses. I'm not going to preach a long time on them. But I want you to turn over there for a minute because I think it will give us some insight into this matter as far as why we are growing cold in love. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, let me read it to you real quick. 2 Timothy chapter 3, the first verse says, 
This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontent, uh, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heedy, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Verse 5, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such turn away, for of this sort are they which crept into houses and led captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lust, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. I think in the second verse there, Paul prophetically, right? And I'm going to say prophetically because he's prophesying of the end, really. I mean, technically, I think you could almost consider he's prophesying of the end times of what it's going to be like. At least he's telling us what a sign of it's going to be. And he, so he prophetically points to a sign of misplaced love in these last days when he says uh, in verse 2, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, right? He's talking about selfish interest here, right? Uh, What this is describing in his phrase, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, he is describing someone who is too consumed with their own interest to pay attention to what's going on around them. You know, an interesting thought the Lord gave me quite a while back I hadn't ever really thought about before is children do not have to be taught to be selfish. Actually, it's the opposite of that. A child has to be taught to share. They have to be taught to take turns. They have to be taught to think of others. If they are not taught then, they will grow up into adults who live for themselves in themselves alone. Those hearts are breeding ground for aggressive, uh, competitive spirits that are consumed with taking rather than giving. The mentality of uh, of pursuing pleasure and success and material treasures at all costs has made idols of things. And it has devalued human life. I talked about the whole thing with abortions a while ago. And I think we've discussed it in Bible study before. How is what we're doing with killing our our little babies before they are actually born. How is that any different than the child sacrifices that was offered to the false god Moloch? I don't believe that it's any different. I believe it because we're selfish and it's about me and it's about I and what I want and you know people not they they think that a child will ruin their life and so they don't want or mess up their plan so they don't want to be inconvenienced with it and so they offer the child on the altar of pleasure. It may not be Moloch's offer or altar, but it is the modern altar of pleasure. See, they want the they, they want the pleasure, they want the good time, they want all the other things. They don't want the consequences. It is so bad, and we've been talking about this for several years now, but it is so bad that on one end of life, the vast, as I've been talking about, the vast majority of abortions are performed out of selfish convenience. You, they'll always make the argument about, well, what if the mother's life is in danger? What if it's, you know, rape or incest? You know, they, they give a, a couple, you know, what ifs like that. But first of all, I don't make allowances for any of those because that is still a life. That is still a soul. I think about when it comes, when it comes to rape, I think about how terrible and dramatic of a, of a um, thing that that is. Hey, and I'm all, I'm all in favor of um, going Old Testament on the guilty party of that, okay? Right? I mean, <laughs> hey, we're missing something by not taking them out to the edge of town and stoning them to death, all right? Look, I'm all for it. But, as ter- and I know that the mother... Right? The woman who's experienced that, I know that there will be mental anguish and she will suffer from that and, uh, you know, probably for the rest of her life. I realize that. But the only thing that I could think that would be worse than what she went through is to kill the innocent unborn child. The one, the one party in the whole thing who, no matter how you cut it, no matter how you slice it, no matter what happened, was totally innocent in the whole thing.
How in the world does that fix it to slaughter it? So on one end of the spectrum of life today in our society, in our culture, we're talking about abortions being performed out of selfish convenience. And on the other end of life, caring for our elderly is viewed as such a burden that we are now exploring the idea of when to end someone's life. Think about it. Of when to end someone's life. There's been a lot of talk, uh, you know, a few years ago, anyways, about putting together these these different panels and when, you know, when is it doesn't pay off to provide health care for them anymore. Well, when you do that, then I mean, you're ending their life, right? You're making the decision of when to end their life. We're living in a society in which people only care about themselves. I is number one. Me is the only one that matters. I mean, our culture today is absolutely self-centered, totally infatuated, completely revolves around me and I and myself. It's what I want. It's what I deserve. It's my rights. It's my desires. It's my feelings. It's all about me, me, me. It is so bad that a new word has entered into our dictionaries. Now, many of yous, Cassie, has done this, and I am not condemning you or getting on to you or anything like that. I just want you to recognize it as a symptom of the time that we come in. Right, I said the problem is it's all focused on me, myself, I, my desires, what I want, Look, the new word that's entered into our dictionary, of all the new words we can make up and put in, here's the, new, here's the new one. Selfie. Selfie. Now how does that not picture... I mean, seriously, you know, it's a reflection of the society that we live in today. That, I'm going to say it again, don't hear me wrong. If you've taken a selfie of yourself, which most of you probably have, that's not, I'm not saying that's bad or anything wrong. But I'm saying that that's where, that is the direction that our society has went into. That's always been one of my things about social media and stuff like that. I mean, there's a lot of good things that can come from it. There's a lot of good things that can come from the television. There's a lot of good things that can come from, uh, you know, the internet and things like that. But there's also a lot of bad things and negative things that can come from it. And the the way that uh, social media is geared and uh, it pushed is is self-promotion. That's not good for us emotionally and spiritually. There's a preacher from the 1700s by the name of Samuel Johnson who said that he, uh, see how do you say, he that overvalues himself will undervalue others. That's the problem, that's the issue. We've overvalued ourselves and that's, how we're, that's why we undervalue other people. That's the opposite of what God says in His Word, right? In Philippians 2, 4, it says, Look, not every man on his own things, but every man on the things of others. Selfish interests are causing us to grow cold. That's what we're talking about. That's the thing. Iniquity abounds, and because of it, uh, the love of many wax cold. Our love is growing cold. In verse 3 that I've read to you here, Paul mentions a second uh, sign of deformed love in these last days whenever he says that um, uh, he notes that, there would be, that we would be without natural affection. That's the first part of verse 3, without natural affection. This is describing someone unsocial, unloving, uh, even towards their own. Someone without a natural obligation of love. I mean, we're to the point that the love between parents and their, you know, love between their parents and their children is natural, should be natural. But in the last days, uh, we will see the total breakdown of family life. Is that not what we see when we look out through our land? Paul saw a generation that would not know the joys of a normal family life. That's what I was trying to illustrate a minute ago when I said that about my children. It breaks my heart for all of these kids that are growing up, even here in our own community, that have no idea what it's like to have a normal family life. You know, 
in our society, we see this, you know, I don't know. I, where it started, where it began, I have no idea. Some people blame it on no-fault uh, divorce laws. I would say that uh, there's truth to that, but it started before that. Uh, we're in a day and a time in the culture where, um, you know, divorces is so easy. Uh, you know, uh, several years ago, there was a divorce lawyer in, I say several years ago, it's been maybe 10 years ago, divorce lawyer in New York City ran a very prominent uh, billboard and put up there, um, you know, you only live once, get divorced. It's gotten so bad that people don't even bother to get married anymore. They just live together instead. And you know what? Children suffer the most from all of this. They're shoved, they're often shoved back and forth. They're dumped on grandparents, or, or worse yet, a lot worse yet. Um, I was pretty much raised by my grandparents, and I thank God for it. It was better than what I would have got at home for sure. But anyways, uh, worse yet than that is many are left alone to raise themselves. And we wonder why they turn out the way that they do. Why mom and dad would be more concerned about doing their own thing, right? Pleasuring themselves, getting high, partying, living it up, running around, right? Acting like a child instead of an adult, you know. Uh, they're more concerned. That is without natural affection. And we wonder why things are the way they are. One last thing and I'm done. I know I preach forever tonight. Verse 4. Paul says in verse 4, I think he notes the, what would be the final sign in this section of declining love in the last days when he said, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Now this does not apply, imply that God is against um, good, honest, decent pleasure. That's not the case at all. The problem is when the love of God is replaced with a burning desire for flesh or for pleasure, right? The lust of the flesh. That is where the problem is. If we look over, and I'm not going to go there for the sake of time, but if we were to look over in Revelation chapter 2, there's seven churches in chapter 2 and chapter 3. The first one is the letter to the church in Ephesus. And Jesus said that the church in Ephesus, right, he starts out, he says a lot of good things about him. He says that they were hardworking, they were, they were disciplined, they were a persevering church. But he goes on and says, however, in spite of all these good things, in spite of all their activity, he said, he's got one thing against them. He said, thou hast left thy first love. You think about that for a minute. It's not that they had stopped loving the Lord altogether, but rather if you study that, what the problem is, is they did not love Him as much as they once did. They got caught up in all their activities and their do-gooding and all these other things, and those things had become first place. Their busyness had produced a barrenness, and their passionate fire was gone. Listen to me, it is a dangerous, damaging, and damning thing to love unworthy things. That's why the scriptures tells us in the book of Colossians to set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. You see, misplaced affection is the reason why so many Christians have grown cold. If we look back at where we started tonight in Matthew 24, when Jesus spoke of the signs of the last days, right? That's how that started. The disciples wanted to know what the signs of the last days would be. When Jesus spoke about it, He said that you're going to hear uh, war. He said you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars, right? He says a nation would rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there would be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. All of this is happening in our world today. And when I think about it, I can't help but ask the question, is the Lord trying to shake us? Is He trying to get our attention? I think about that because it says, you know, earthquakes in diverse places, and I've often wondered, why in 
diverse places. Why in different places? And I'm sure there's a lot better explanation for it. I'm not saying that this is it, but I've always think about when I think about earthquakes, especially where they're not usually are. I think God's shaking you and trying to wake you up. He's trying to get a hold of you. I think about those people in the train going by that I told you the story to begin with. And I feel that we are at the same spot in the same crossroads today. I had Jake put that picture up there. I found that, uh, actually Jennifer found it for me, of the train tracks going by the church. Spiritually speaking, I think that's a picture of our church right now. And so my question to you tonight, because the choice is ours, is to either respond or we can just ignore it and sing a little bit louder. So that's my question to you tonight, church. What are we going to do? Are we going to respond, right? How are we going to respond? Are we going to do something about it? Or are we going to sing a little bit louder? I've thought a lot. Give me just a second, Jennifer. I've thought a lot about the state and the condition of our church. There's a lot of good things going on, a lot of good things happening, and I'm proud of. But I also look out, and there's not as many of us here as they once was. There's some that have passed on and went on to be with the Lord. There's a lot of people that just could be here and ain't here. I look out in our community and there's a lot of people that ought to be in church somewhere, but they're not. And part of me wants to say, just ignore it and say that's their problem. They know better and they're not doing it. I'm not going to spend my life chasing them. But isn't that just singing a little bit louder? Church, what are we going to do about it? We've been talking a lot about revival for a while. We need revival. We need revival in our community. We need revival right here in our church. I need revival in my heart. Church, it is high time, right? It's high time that we got serious about winning the lost to Jesus. It's high time that we went after these that have fallen off somewhere along the way. Look, their souls are crying out just as, just as those poor helpless Jews was crying out for help. We have the message, right? We have the gospel. I realize we're not going to be able to reach them all. We're not going to be able to save them all. But goodness sakes, couldn't we at least, when we leave this world, say that we have tried, that we have given it our all? We've done all that we could. If I was to leave this world right now, I couldn't say that. What about you? What about you? Would you stand to your feet as Jennifer plays? I want to open the altar and I want to give you a chance to come tonight. Maybe the Spirit of God's been dealing with you and if He has, would you come? Maybe you've grown cold and indifferent. That's something you need to repent of. Would you come and do that? Maybe God has burdened your heart with somebody, right? Maybe there's somebody you need to be praying for. Man, don't. We need to be spending more time on the altar. Come pray for them. Maybe you've got some things going on in your own life and there's some difficulties and you're wore down, you're tired or whatever the case may be, right? Maybe you're heavy burdened with some things. Would you come? Maybe you've let some sin creep into your life, right? That's become a hindrance. It's getting in the way. It's getting interfering in your walk with God and your service for Him. It's a distraction. Would you come and repent of it? Get it out of the way. Maybe there's somebody in your life that's lost and you'd like to see them get saved. You need to be praying for them. Maybe it's you. Maybe you realize you're not where you ought to be. I'm asking you. I'm begging you. You may not get another opportunity. Would you come tonight? Whatever the need, whatever it is, would you come tonight? Don't miss this chance. Come on.